Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a proposed city council commission would take aim at Boston's rising numbers of homeless children. Five Massachusetts colleges have added the business of pot to their course curriculums, and a new plan to tear down a beloved South End institution, the historic Villa Victoria Art Center, is facing demolition. Later in the show, the story of one of America's quintessential restaurants, the unknown visionary behind its creation and its link to the history of New York City. The most spectacular restaurant in the world is author Tom Roston's revealing saga of the Twin Towers restaurant, Windows on the World. And it's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Gen Dumpschus, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Hi, Gen. Thanks for having me. Seth Daniels, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and the Revere Journal. Hello, Seth. Hey, Callie. Hi. And Sue O'Connell, commentator for NECN and WGBH and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello, Sue. Hello, Callie. All right. We're going to jump right in with Pot moving to the classroom. <laughs> Out of the dorm room into the classroom. <laughs> yes. Tell us all about it again. <laughs> so uh, my colleague, uh, Hillary Burns, she dug into this issue and found at least five colleges are looking at creating classes because we have this new industry here. And I think you saw that a little bit with all the casinos opening and people had to be trained in culinary stuff and, and all the demand that uh, that casinos are bringing to the job market. So it's natural to think that um, after voters legalized marijuana for recreational use in 2016, that there is going to be this new industry. And that means people are going to want jobs and they're going to want to be trained in these jobs. And uh, the schools here are, it's Mount Wachusett uh, Community College, uh, which is great to see a community college get involved in here because that's where so many people go. Mm -hmm. uh, Clark University in Worcester, Holyoke Community College, Boston University, and then Roxbury Community College is working with a couple of organizations on their educational program. Well, actually, that was the point I was going to bring up, um, Sue, is mm -hmm. that um, there are more than just community colleges. And I'm saying just because you would think that this kind of curriculum would be exactly where community colleges would live because they're trying to meet the workforce mm -hmm. requirements in Massachusetts, and there are many. Um, but it looks like Boston University and Clark University want to get in on the action as well. Yeah, I actually just did a, a paid gig uh, hosting a cannabis sustainability symposium this mm. week. And um, the top three issues <laughs> that came out of it, I don't know what you think they might be, mm. but it was mildew, humidity, and LED lighting. Wow. And it was like five hours of some of the most technical jargon and maps of how to set things up. One person did say it looked like his dorm room in, in college <laughs> and some of it. But it's it's a very, very technical and detailed and um, hard to understand business in some ways, just, just looking at the how do you grow cannabis. Mm -hmm. Another point that was made, and to the point of yours and uh, the Roxbury Community College issue as well, and the community college issue is we keep looking at the lack of diversity 
diversity mm -hmm. in the cannabis industry, right? The whole big inspirational, aspirational idea was that this would be a business that would make right the wrongs that were done to communities, especially communities of colors that had been adversely impacted by strict marijuana laws. And then at the top, we see nothing but a lot of white people. There were a lot of white people at the symposium. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of jobs in this industry, not just owning the cannabis companies. So uh, it's a it's a great opportunity, I think, for lots of people to g get into an emerging marketplace. It's about marketing. You know, it's about humidity. <laughs> it's about mildew. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's about the law. You know, that's the other part of it. And you were just talking about growing. You know, there's all sales and all the other stuff. Let me just mention that Roxbury Community College, according to your colleague's uh, article again, is working with the Massachusetts Association of Community Colleges, Greater Boston Legal Services, Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts, the Commonwealth Dispensary Association, and Lawyers for Civil Rights Boston, to Sue's point, uh, to try to, you know, broaden who might be uh, available and trained for these jobs. Right. And mm. and I, I would add that the uh, other component of this is we've read a lot a lot about the dire situation that a lot of small colleges are going to be facing uh, over the next mm. decade. Right. And this is another way for these colleges to uh, to differentiate themselves, to draw students, because that's that's what's at the heart of this crisis. People are expecting a massive drop off in uh, students coming into New England. And this is one way for colleges to differentiate itself. Uh, I'll say it's not just marijuana. Suffolk Law School is trying to open a biotech degree. So it's one of those things where, where colleges are, are are trying to move a little bit faster. I know college campuses aren't known for moving no. uh, too, too fast yeah. on matters. But this is one in one instance where colleges are like, wait, wait a second. Like this is this is an opportunity for both us and the Massachusetts workforce. Seth, uh, Holyoke Community College has opened a cannabis education center. So they're going to host industry events, mm -hmm. provide education, workforce training. So it's even beyond the curriculum. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a, a great idea. And again, mentioned like the casinos, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I see it more on the proposal end where companies are bringing in proposals. But what has shocked me in the marijuana industry is all the jobs, you know, that these colleges and uh, need to prepare students for. I mean, it, it is, um, it's a plant, you know, and it has to be grown. Plant biology is going to be a big part of that. You know, these are really good jobs. Um, there's going to be, like you mentioned, um, symposiums, there's going to be you know, all kinds of training. Um, the problem at the at this point I saw, this is in Chelsea, I've seen mm. this, is there's still the stigma. It's like, yes. mom, I'm taking a course to learn how to grow marijuana. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is, a. It, in like the casinos, we learned, oh, they need IT people that pay a lot of money. And the same thing here. And I don't know that we've all realized that yet. It's interesting to see the colleges particularly the community colleges have. And we're on the emerging, you know, we're still, we think we're late here, but mm -hmm. we're still on the emerging end of it. So that's the exciting part about it. That's, we have the opportunity to educate our people, you know, here in the state of Massachusetts in the region. And back to Seth and the stigma thing, uh, one of my colleagues here, uh, Soraya Wintersmith, did a piece about how people in uh, Dorchester and Roxbury are like, well, I don't, I don't mm. you know, I know it's a business and I know there should be diversity, but this this whole situation has burned our community. So I, I have strong feelings about it. And oh, by the way, I don't want to overlook a comment by somebody. This is a commissioner at the state's Cannabis Control Commission saying that, you know, it's the fact is that it's still federally illegal and students do receive financial aid. So there's going to be some kind of movement to try to figure that whole thing out as they try to go forward. But, you know, this this is a lot of money for the state in many other ways other than sales and, and growth, you know. 
All right, let's move on to Villa Victoria Arts Center, which has been in the South End as this center since 1986. Before that, it was a well-known church uh, mm-hmm. and parish. Central location for Hispanic culture. Yep. This is beloved. Oh, yeah. They're yes. talking about taking it down, Seth. Yeah, I don't know that they have a choice. Um, they sunk a, a bunch of money into the idea of restoring it. Um, it is an old German Lutheran church. It served um, immigrants from Germany in the 1800s. But if, since 1986, it, I mean, it's hosted Grammy-winning musicians. Um, it's a great art center for the entire community. There's a lot of rehearsal space that happens there that we don't even see. You name it. Um, and it's a central location for, for Hispanic culture in Via Victoria and actually the region, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's falling apart. They, they were going to repair the steeple, the walls. It was going to look great. And then they, uh, as, as with many old structures, they opened it up and said, uh, <laughs> maybe not. Um, oh, so they ran into some some huge structural issues. And actually, um, last month, uh, the Boston Fire Department condemned the whole building. They had a preschool in another part that was at that time safe. And they had to rush the preschool out, find a different place for it. Um, so they're really in a, in a bind. Um, but yes, it is historic. And, and to refurbish it would be it's in the 20 million or more range. A new place would be far less. Yeah. But, again, you know, here we are in the South yeah, End. And the, and the challenges that Boston has that other places don't is that, you know, the South End is on water, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot of exposed beams in people's basements that should be covered by water but aren't covered by water and therefore cause a lot of rot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of landfill that buildings are on. And unless you are investing in the building as a to keep it historic and to keep it mm. updated all along you mean all along mm-hmm. or you are going to tear down the insides and just keep the front and make it into condominiums these are the challenges that we're going to have with our buildings and uh you know again this is this is sort of not quite like the Harriet Tubman house because yeah. the Harriet Tubman house is a newer building obviously mm-hmm. but it's a huge challenge for this this organization and we're hoping that you know the whole south end community can come to and the whole hispanic community can come together as well and try and help them to move to where they need to be because this this church ain't standing up so again what they're proposing is to replace it with a new building that's six stories. I mean, it'll be brand new and it's going to accommodate all of the stuff that is there now, the arts displays, the special events, you know, still promote the Hispanic culture and the arts as it has been. That's the mission. Mm-hmm. But it's new. Right. And, and I think that's that's part of the kind of a broader problem we have as a culture where we like the new, we let, you know, we celebrate a new bridge, we celebrate a new, you know, or, new Orange Line car. But when it comes to maintenance, People don't either don't want to do it, don't want to think about it. They always think it's someone else's problem. And here we are, beautiful buildings, these you know old train cars. You know they are they're they're going to fall apart at some point. And so so that preventative maintenance is so important, and it really should be spotlighted more often. And I, I so can tell you, point. but yeah. I can't tell you, but I could tell you the story of a couple of old, very historic buildings from the 1700s that went under some renovation and weren't built exactly the way that the people thought they were built. Uh, you know that. Yeah, the, you know, yeah. the, we think, oh, great, they brought these slabs of yeah. marble yeah. or whatever, and they yeah. built it, and they've been standing for so long, and it's so great, and then they open up something, and it's hollow, you know. Well, so, you know, we weren't building under the same codes and regulations that we were yes. in the 1700s and the 1800s. So once you start a renovation on some of these buildings, I mean, 
almost anybody who owns a farmhouse will tell you, you know, that's when you find out that the main beam just isn't there mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah. calamity one other, comes. One of the other issues is um, Boston in the 80s was empty. These neighborhoods yeah. were basically empty. And mm-hmm. a lot of the, oh, this church, I'm sure they came to very easily and nobody else wanted it. Yeah. So you have things like that that are in the hands of a nonprofit that's a, actually a housing organization. Mm-hmm. And, and how, you know, they need to build affordable housing like never before. Yeah. So how can you justify restoring this huge old building yeah. for an art center when people are, you know, they're homeless, they're living on the street, we need affordable housing. Um, and so you have a lot of these situations where nonprofits, where their mission is not an art center, actually have an art center or something like that in a building that's falling apart because it's just not their mission. Yeah, that was the bonus. The bonus yeah. was that it, they had an art center, yeah. right? Well, as you say, um, there is a meeting on Monday to discuss this, and it doesn't sound like from this yeah. discussion there's actually much to discuss other than people need to get on board with the with the new building. Yeah, right. it's a landmarks thing. So landmarks is the historic, you know, district uh, commission that look overlooks renovations and demolitions, and they're asking for a hardship waiver, which means they can't afford to restore this. Mm. Um, That's a little rare, and it'll be interesting how it plays out. Uh, Landmarks can be your friend or they can be your enemy in many cases. Um, You just don't know. And we'll see how this plays out. I mean, the community will be very involved, too. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Gin Doomchus of the Boston Business Journal, Seth Daniel of the Independent News Group, and Sue O'Connell, commentator for NECN and WGBH. And we're talking about the latest Boston local headlines you need to know. One of them, uh, Sue O'Connell, is that Anissa Isayabi George, Boston City Councilor, is calling for a commission because the numbers of young people who are homeless have gotten so big. Yeah, the number of uh, young people people in the Boston public school system has jumped from 3,500 to just about 5,000. And as you know, she's a former uh, teacher, so she knows, you know, firsthand how the challenges that kids experiencing homelessness face when they're just trying to get to school and to get an education. And, you know, she's bringing and asking for the city to do a report twice a year uh, to keep tabs so that we're not surprised by this number if it grows or hopefully if it if it decreases. And also to bring the services to the kids, right? So this is a model that we've been seeing be very effective in so many areas of servicing people in need, that if we can just identify the kids who are homeless and get them the services that they need at the school, then we can help their families and help them and get them to be involved in the education process and hopefully have a better life. Now, the Boston public school system doesn't necessarily count kids as homeless. Um, You know, so you might be thinking of people who are living in their cars or people who are living on the streets, but it's also kids who don't have a permanent address. They might be living on a relative's couch or a friend's couch. So it's, I think, justifiably an expansive definition. But, um, you know, there's just so many challenges that these kids face getting to school, much less trying to get an education. And I think it's definitely within the the city's wheelhouse to, to address it. Again, would you were you surprised to know that 3,500 homeless children in Boston a couple of years ago, and now it's 5,000? That's just that, two years. That's a, that's a pretty big jump. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, again, speaks to the broader problems we have about as we're growing as a city, making sure that people aren't left behind and, and especially like getting involved as early as possible to make sure this doesn't spiral out of control. I mean, it already seems to be uh, becoming a big problem and and, uh, and good for Councillor George to, to get involved in this. Well, Seth, this is sort of uh, an addendum to what you were saying about uh, affordable housing. Yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the, the bad side effects mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I sit on so many meetings that talk about 
uh, the kind of homelessness that we see where it's like chronic or veteran homelessness. And they talk about that. We talk about it a lot, but it's always with a caveat from the city that our real problem is family homelessness in Boston. And that's something you just don't see. It falls under the radar, mm -hmm. uh, between the cracks. It does affect kids when they go to school. You know, it food insecurity, all those things. And, um, you know, frankly, uh, like Sue was saying, living with a relative or on a couch, those are stressful situations. Relatives may not always want you on their couch, right? Yeah, that's right. Or friends, or actually. Friends. All right. So <laughs> while you're talking, Seth, let's talk about the safe injection discussion. Yeah. Um, people may know that there is a debate going, even though we do not have a facility. Actually, there's not a facility in the United States, but there's mm -hmm. been some discussion about safe injection sites where people who are addicted would go to do their drugs in front of medical mm -hmm. personnel. The point of this is to reduce overdoses or yes. to eliminate them. And before everybody's in their car freaking out, um, <laughs> where they have these centers in other parts of the world, our closest neighbor, Canada, has some, yeah. um, no overdoses as a result of mm -hmm. this methodology. So it, it, it seems counterintuitive to some, sure. but it, there's a track record of its working elsewhere. Anyway, there's a lot of skepticism about it. And in fact, Mayor Walsh was uh, very skeptical about it. He went to visit one, mm -hmm. changed his mind about it. And in Charlestown, they decided, well, let's build one and take a look. Yeah, they <laughs> have, it's, it's interesting. Most of this discussion has been in the South End and, you know, the Mass Cass area and you know, we're going to put one there or maybe we're not, who knows. But this one kind of came out of left field. And the reason it's different is it was in a health center, an MGH health center, right? And so... That's the, Mass General Hospital. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> okay, Mass General ahead. Hospital. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, so that, that's different because what they were talking about in the South End and other places potentially was a standalone facility, which is that is all it would be. Um, this is a health center with pediatricians, geriatrics, uh, dietitians, and a safe injection site, right? So it was a mock one. I mean, nobody was using drugs there, but it was what it would look like. It was studies. It was discussions. They had a panel. Um, a lot of um, people may not know Charlestown was probably the first place to experience the opiate um, crisis before it was a crisis, before anyone really cared too much. Um, it was prescription drugs, a lot of it. Popular sentiment says it was because it's a hockey town and a lot of people got hurt and they mm -hmm. got opiates and that's how it started, construction as well. So anyway, they, um, they've they been on the forefront of this for a while. And there's a doctor at the MGH Mass General um, Clinic there who has really called for this for some time. He's part of a group called SIF Now, which is Safe Injection Facilities Now. And they've been also with Mayor Curtitone in Somerville. Mm -hmm. Um, they've been very active there. So their idea is that let's do this in a medically supervised place, a place where there's a lot of people coming and going, not just something, you know, where it's... Uh, a, well, you'd import uh, your medical personnel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. And, and there's a whole mm -hmm. medical thing going on, mm -hmm. and this is medical, and this is mm -hmm. another part of it. It was a mixed bag. A lot of people came to look at it and said, no way. Mm -hmm. Some people came and said, maybe, and others were all for it. They had legislators come, legislative mm. aides come. They had a, sh uh, not a sheriff, but a police chief from the South Shore come. So um, a fair amount of interest and, and intrigue, you know, it was, it was another tool. Mm -hmm. um, needle exchanges were introduced. They were the same way. Um, Narcan, the drug that revives people from overdoses, that was controversial, now not. Um, so we'll see if this is too. It's just, um, it's an idea 
of putting it in a health center. It's interesting. Well, I think the fact that they actually built something for people to see, I noted that in your piece, Councilor, Boston City Councilor Lydia Edwards said she wasn't sure about it, but she would love to have seen it. So probably mm-hmm. more people yeah. should have filtered through there to see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I yeah. think they're taking it on the road. I think it's yeah. just the... The kickoff. Um, you'll see it in other places, I'm sure. All right, again. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just say, uh, I mean, having people experience it in a in a very, you know, seeing it and being able to touch it, feel it. I think that that I mean, that's probably why Mayor Walsh changed his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this is a, a legal gray area. This is yes. something that um, the feds, in particular, the the top federal prosecutor in Massachusetts, has said that he is not a fan of. He said it repeatedly every time this comes up. You know, and I know health healthcare entities take federal money, similar to colleges. Uh, that take federal money and are now doing marijuana classes. I think it's just, it, I think people are, are trying to operate carefully because there's so many legal gray areas, um, even as people are trying to innovate and trying to try new things. Well, we should say that that is the, probably the reason why the nonprofit in uh, Philadelphia, Sue, um, went to court mm-hmm. uh, to get approval to do that. And it's a nonprofit in charge, not uh, some of the uh, the organizations you just mentioned, because they're a little bit out of the legal um, situation, except they actually had to go to court to fight for their right to have the center, and they won. Right, so, and so. I, I think we see what the future is, though, because you've got these big players like MGH who are investing in um, forwarding the notion and forwarding the idea and showing the science of how effective it is. And I'll, I'd also note that some of the challenges that uh, Canada has had is that when they've had these safe injection sites, that's all that they've been—I mean, they also have services there that, again, another model where you get the people in and you're able to give right. them the services while they're there. And there's been some concern about uh, the crime and the, and the community around the safe injection sites, much like has happened over on Melnia and Cass because of the convergence of, of uh, services there. If you have it in a health center already, you're already kind of minimizing the uh, negative impact that it may have on the community around it. So I think that's also a smart move. Over you again, this is interesting. So there's a Massachusetts Super PAC. This is a political organization, I guess. I was trying to say, how, what, how do you call it? <laughs> that's um, the best to way, raise money, usually for something specific. This one's called the Massachusetts Majority Super PAC, which is a little confusing. As I read through it, it appeared to be mostly Republicans, but am I off here? Yeah, so so this this actually this is one of the stories that basically dropped in my lap uh, or my, my mailbox. Uh, <laughs> I live in Weymouth, and, and I got one of these mailers. The mayor is running uh, for re-election, Bob Headland. He's a Republican, uh, obviously nonpartisan election at the local level. Weymouth is, I think, one of about 50 communities that go to the polls on Tuesday for these local elections. And the super PAC, it had like the word there, Massachusetts majority, touting him, uh, the things he's accomplished. And rules and regulations in Massachusetts say you have to put the top contributor at the bottom of these mailers. And I saw at the bottom of these mailers, there's the co-founders of Wayfair. There's uh, the guy who owns Quirk Auto. There's the founder of Analog Devices. So naturally, I got I got very curious, started making some phone calls. And it turns out it's the super PAC that is backing conservative Democrats, moderate Democrats, and Republicans in a lot of these races uh, that Governor Charlie Baker has endorsed or has supported in the past. And this super PAC has aligned with him to help get some of these folks hmm. into office. I think the interesting part of it, too, is that this is happening as there is this break between Governor Baker and the state 
Republican Party apparatus, where the party apparatus has has gone very far towards President Trump and and very much focused on supporting him, while Baker remains uh, doing his own thing, moderate Republicanism, New England Republicanism. So it's interesting that the super PAC is now, as Baker is, is uh, not, I, I don't know, fighting is the right word, but certainly uh, squabbling with his own party, that this super PAC has, has yeah. uh, come up to help uh, candidates that he supported. So what's y'all's take on it? So what's your take well, on it? Well, first of all, <laughs> I want to point out to our listeners that uh, Ginn was able to determine who was behind the mailing because they were required to put it on the mailing, unlike mm. on Facebook, right? Mm. So, yes. uh, you know, all the rules and regulations that uh, uh, mailings and newspapers and, and television sure. stations are required to do, Facebook is not required to do. Mm. So if Ginn had seen that posting on his Facebook feed, he wouldn't have known what was going on. Excellent so point. I just want to point that yes. out when we're talking about Facebook. Yeah. This is what we're talking about. So good lesson in that, Ginn. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, it, I think it is true. I think they are the majority. I think that, you know, our, our unaffiliated independent voters in Massachusetts are the majority. Well, that's and true. I think yeah. That that's that's sort of who who this this pack is is targeting those people who uh, probably vote Democrat most of the time, but also vote Republican for governor mm. and may mm. consider someone who's not Scott Lively, the the former yeah. uh, candidate for governor, who might be a good fit for them. So I think it's I think it's good for politics. Um, what do you think, Seth? Well, I think I've I've seen um, larger amounts of money come into local elections. Um, really a lot lately in the last couple of cycles. And, and, and usually it's from out of town. It's not so much, you know, the $50 check at the, uh, at the breakfast in the church basement is how they used to raise most of their money. And they didn't raise a lot, but these races are really requiring a lot more money. And the thing that always interests me, whether it's a super PAC or a developer or somebody with an interest giving um, a lot of money um, is what they spend it on. Hmm. And <laughs> what they spend it on are these mailers. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> yeah. 10 out of 10 of them in my house go right in the recycling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And they're very expensive. Yeah. So okay. I, I wonder how much of an effect it does. They're really trying to reach a, uh, voters and there are smaller numbers of voters, but we have a better way of pinpointing those voters now with computers and new technology. And um, it's interesting how this, this fundraising is happening. And I wonder if it makes much of a difference. Well, obviously, for one potential voter, uh, that would be Ginn. He, yeah. he read his mailer, <laughs> just to point out. Yeah, well, yeah and, and, and it's fascinating to, you know, they've, they've raised, the Super PAC has raised about a million, about a million dollars now, and they've spent, uh, this is, again, filings that they were required to do. They did it just a few days ago. So with, you know, less than a week before the election, they they had to file this information. And obviously, it's on a state website that is not necessarily, I, I don't think the average voter tends to go to very often. Um, I, I check it regularly because I'm just weird like that. But, um, you know, they've, they've raised nearly a million dollars, spent nearly $300,000 on these mailers going to all these different communities. Um, and it's, it's just fascinating to see what happens. I will add, too, that I don't think this is necessarily a new thing. I mean, in, in the Boston mayor's race, uh, there was a super PAC that was funded by outside uh, teachers union money yeah. that came in and helped uh, uh, mm-hmm. Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Uh, certainly, uh, I don't. I don't know how much they helped him, but it certainly didn't hurt. Hmm. Um, so I think that's what a lot of these super PACs try to do. They make these like surgical strikes. They move in and out quickly, and because the, you know, again, they don't have to file as quickly as candidates do. Yeah, they can get away with a little bit. They can cut a little bit closer to election day. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a um, if 
people are interested in this, there's a great resource the Office of Campaign and Political Finance puts out a wonderful newsletter post-election uh -huh. that talks all about this, the super PACs. And uh, there's a lot of people taking super PAC money, and you would have be very surprised. Or not. Yes. <laughs> no, okay. But that's a good point. Seth, I just have to talk about these chickens. Cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's the rooster. But anyway. Uh, yeah. No, we can't have roosters. No that's roosters. not I know. They, right they voted to allow residents to have two chickens. Yes, in Chelsea. Uh, in this Chelsea. Is right. Yeah. Okay. This has been a conversation. This is um, not just Chelsea. This is kind of sweeping across this is what a I lot of talk communities. About. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's a trend. Um, Somerville, I think, started it. It's been talked about in Everett, and they just tabled it because it was just too bizarre. Um, in Chelsea, they, they took it up, and um, the counselor over there, Giovanni Recupero, I call him the region's most interesting elected official, <laughs> um, and he is. Um, he, he brought this up. It's uh, a weird convergence of two constituencies, which are the young, hip urban dwellers with uh, immigrants from rural South America who mm -hmm. both have the same wish, and that is to have a few chickens in their backyard. And it is not legal. Um, you have to go through uh, Board of Health to get permission. I mean, you know, that's, that's a hassle. Who wants to do that? And you probably wouldn't get it anyway. So um, there are enough people who want this. They want eggs or whatever they want from the chickens. Yeah. And now they are allowed to do it. It was quite a fight. A lot of people wow. didn't want to talk about it. They thought it was a waste of time. But yeah. this is something that more and more people in urban areas want. They want to be able to keep these... Is it right? I don't know. Is it safe? Is it sanitary? I, I, a lot of people are wondering, and we're going to find out in Chelsea and <laughs> I and think Somerville. Somerville, I guess. Yeah, Somerville yeah. has had it for a while, and mm -hmm. I think they've had some good and bad stories. I'm yeah. for it. Why? Because I, I don't think just rich people should be able to keep chickens. You go to Sherburne, there are people with chickens all over the place. I'm against the roosters just because yeah, you know, they're loud. I'm against they get roosters. Up at three in the morning. It's but tough. you know, it's like I, I have a bird. I've had a bunny, and by I don't, I don't need any. I have a parakeet. I have two dogs. I don't need to have any special a regulation. Is a different thing. Well, I know, but you know, the Kardashians had a chicken. They had. A, the, the, they're the, living on a big, you know. The uh, issue becomes. I'll tell you what the <laughs> issue is, and this happened in Jamaica Plain um, a, a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that the, the, the hipsters get the chickens to lay the eggs. Yes. They get bored with the idea of having exactly. the chickens. And then they let the chickens go because the they problem. don't want to kill them. Yes. That's a problem. Yes. But that's a problem we have with all sorts of pets and animal sources. True. So it's not just the chicken. I'm not a big fan of chickens. I often say if I were ever to become a hardcore vegetarian, I'd still eat chickens and turkeys because I don't like them. <laughs> but I think that people should be allowed to have, you know, a few chickens. Oh, my God. Again, uh, what do you think? Well, I, I was telling Seth before we... we uh, we started the show. Uh, when I moved to Weymouth, I was talking to my neighbor, and I half-jokingly said, I was like, well, maybe we'll, I'll have a chicken coop in the backyard. The neighbor, dead serious, said, absolutely not. <laughs> so that ended that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think the rabbit example that the counselor came up with saying, well, people have rabbits. People do not have, you know, uh, billions of rabbits. It's yeah, just ridiculous. Yeah. This is, I, I think this is going to be a bigger, become a bigger issue because of the rat thing, and I think that's a real important yeah. mm -hmm. uh thing to consider. Yeah, so, it could be rescinded rather quickly. Well, I, I, once you got it in there, it's really hard to get, you know, rescind. But it's Because true. to Sue's point, now you've got families of chickens everywhere. Who's going to gather them up and mm -hmm. do whatever they do? But anyway, Sue, let me just squeeze in uh, Fred Taylor yeah. as we end. Uh, he was a jazz promoter who did a whole bunch for everybody. Let, yeah. me, let me just play this. This is Miles Davis' iconic composition, So What, from his 1959 record, Kind of Blue. I'll tell you why this is connected. Thank you. 
So Fred Taylor, six decades, brought all kinds of uh, names of uh, jazz greats into Boston. Miles Davis actually restarted his career, and that's why we wanted to play that, uh, because of Fred Taylor. Yeah, Fred Taylor mm-hmm. passed away this week at age 90. Uh, I, I've known Fred since the early 90s, and uh, first of all, what a great guy. What what you know, The kind of man that if you called for a favor, if he couldn't do the favor for you, he told you how to get the favor done. Everyone loved Fred Taylor, including Miles Davis, and if you know anything about Miles Davis... He didn't like anybody. He didn't like anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when Miles Davis relaunched his uh, career, uh, he would only come to Boston if Fred Taylor were involved in bringing him to Boston. And Fred worked, most recently you would know his work at Scullers in Cambridge where he was in charge of booking that room. Everyone from Leah Delaria to the late uh, Lou Rawls, he was involved in Paul's Mall and the Jazz Workshop. He brought uh, Diana Ross to town, Bruce Springsteen, Sonny Rollins, Herbie Hancock. He is he is just one of the main main fixtures in the Boston and regional jazz scene and a tremendous human being. There's a great story. Uh, Sue O'Claire, the publicist who was very close with him, often tells how when he would get, he didn't have like a very strict catering uh, rider. You know, the, the artists get to ask what they want for food. Fred would just do the food himself and bring it back because he was such a caring individual that he wanted to make sure that everyone was so taken care oh, of. So nice. we lost him this week, but uh, his his influence will live on. Well, mm. that's a nice way to end this session. I thank you all for joining me. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Kelly. Gen Dumchis is the digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Seth Daniel is a senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Sue O'Connell is a commentator for NECN and WGBH and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Coming up, the glitzy and glamorous Windows on the World restaurant sat at the top of the North Tower of New York's iconic Twin Towers. Author Tom Roston has chronicled the life and times of the restaurant in his new book, The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World. And it's our November selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. to Dionne Warwick sing Windows of the World, a Burt Bacharach composition which inspired the name of the Windows on the World restaurant. The restaurant boasted what author Tom Roston has described as a God's eye view high atop one of the tallest buildings in New York City. For 25 years, the restaurant drew prideful New Yorkers and tourists from around the globe until it was destroyed in the terrorist attack of 9-11. 
The book, The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World, tells both the story of the birth and death of the restaurant and the rebirth of New York. And it's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Tom Rustin joins me now from the NPR studios in New York City. Welcome to Under the Radar, Tom. Thanks for, so much for having me on the show, Kelly. Well, I couldn't be more excited to have you. What a beautifully written, exciting book. It's fabulous. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> I you. really enjoyed it. So it's been nearly 20 years uh, since Windows on the World, the restaurant's been gone, and a lot of people will just be learning about it in your book. I wondered if you would just give a first, a, kind of a brief description of what Windows on the World was. I did a little bit in the opening, but how it became an important destination in New York. Well, it was this incredible, opulent restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, the North Tower of the World Trade Center, uh, up on the 107th floor. And um, it was known for uh, exciting, sometimes very expensive food, but most of all for these miraculous, incredible views of the entire city. At a time when the city was really in the dumps, especially you know, in the 1970s when it was created, when, when the restaurant was uh, opened, it was in 1976, when the city was at its lowest nadir. And um, yet at the top of this incredible building was this luxurious restaurant. And in a way, it was, a, it was many people credited it, credited the restaurant and those buildings for giving the, the city of New York a, a reason to look forward. And the, the full title of your book is The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World, The Twin Towers, Windows on the World, and the Rebirth of New York. And I have to say, when I began reading it, I had forgotten, I, maybe I didn't really know, how uh, down in the dumps New York City was at various points um, and how it was struggling economically and that its reputation really was as a city that was dangerous. Uh, talk about a little bit more fully about some of those times before Times Square was cleaned up. Yeah, well, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up during that time, and I recall you could not walk down some streets without having to dodge, you know, the dog poop that was everywhere, the garbage that was everywhere, the abandoned lots, uh, the constant threat of getting mugged. And, you know, we had a president who didn't quite say these words, but the Daily News translated as drop dead um, because he refused to uh, uh, help finance the city's uh, bankruptcy, basically, in 1976. So it, it was it was not doing well, um, largely because of financial irresponsibility uh, by previous governments. Um, but there was also uh, other economic conditions. And, you know, the city needed to change a lot of what it was doing. And um, it went through that terrible phase. And what was incredible to uh, many New Yorkers at the time was that these large, monstrous buildings were being built in um, from 1969 to 1973 is what was when it was completed. The, the World Trade Center were these awful, enormous, expensive, costing a billion dollars, uh, buildings that really had no organic value to, to the city. And they were being created in the strained part of the city in the, in the uh, financial, what, you know, the financial district near Wall Street where no one ever went. Um, so it was, it was very incongruous and very strange. Um, and it seemed like a boneheaded move by the, the government and by the, the Port Authority that was creating it. Uh, and um, what Guy Tazzoli, the director of the World Trade Center, uh, realized was that he needed to make these buildings attractive, not just to New Yorkers, but to the people who might uh, move into the building as tenants, as office tenants. Um, 
And so he sweetened the pot. He created this restaurant, or he had Joe Baum, this incredible restaurateur, uh, create this amazing restaurant that made these buildings accessible. You know, what's so interesting is that, you know, you forget um, how one man's, and it's, I mean, there were many people involved in this, but really it was driven by this one man. You just mentioned him, uh, Joe Baum, um, you know, coming up with what seemed like a crazy idea. Um, you've just mentioned what state the city was in and, you know, what a risk this was and people were mad about it. And he says, let's build a really expensive restaurant and people will come. I mean, who was this guy? He, he didn't know any other way. Um, you know, some people called him the P.T. Barnum of restaurants. Some consider him the first restaurateur. Uh, he was certainly the biggest restaurateur of the 20th century in New York City. He created La Fonda del Sol, but his, his, his masterpiece was The Four Seasons, which is considered one of the greatest restaurants ever created. Um, but also interesting places like Zoom Zoom and um, and uh, the form of the Twelve Caesars. And Joe was a real character. Joe Baum um, was known for being a creative genius, but also incredibly hard to understand. He, he spoke in very odd linguistic forms, and he would have long meetings, and people didn't really understand fully what he was saying. And he had a temper. He would rage at anyone who did not do exactly what he wanted to do. He he did, you know, the, the iconic pulled the tablecloth from a, a f fully dressed, a fully uh, set table in the restaurant just because there was one fork out of the, out of the way. Um, and yet, at the same time that he was um, difficult, he did inspire um, many people to step up their game. And uh, Windows on the World was known for having incredible uh, service. And uh, and and uh, that's what people wanted. Uh, whether it was tourists or New Yorkers, they were excited to be at a place that was so exciting. And uh, the restaurant almost matched the views because there was brass railing. There were waiters and 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 maitre d's who had you know stiff backs and looked you know uh, you know totally immaculate, and um, some pretty exciting food too. That's my guest, Tom Rustin. He is the author of The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World, The Twin Towers, Windows on the World, and The Rebirth of New York. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Um, I would love to have you read a little bit about Joe because to give people a sense of how kind of over the top he was um, and how perfectionist he was about um, everything and particularly about this big risk, Windows on the World. Yes, yeah, so this is told by George Lois, one of the great admin of the 50s and 60s, he's the kind of guy that uh, that show Mad Men was all about. And George was um, one of the admin that Joe Baum had hired to spread the word about his restaurants. Uh, so this is uh, Lois thinking back. Lois also recalls being tested by Baum early during a meeting at the Four Seasons in another story that's been repeated in various iterations. Baum brought Lois to the bar where the bartender asked, what will you be having, Mr. Baum? Make me a Bloody Mary, Jack, Baum responded, casting a sideways look at Lois. The bartender placed the drink on the bar. Baum looked at him hard and said, Jack, could you taste it? Of course, Mr. Baum, the bartender replied, and he took a sip. What do you think, asked Baum. Terrific, Mr. Baum, he said. Could you make an even better one for me, Baum asked. As the bartender complied, Baum wrapped his fingers on the bar and sang to himself, Hum-dee, hum-dee, hum. And he gave Lois another glance with an arched eyebrow. 
When the bartender placed the new drink on the bar, Baum jutted out his chin and asked him to taste it again. Is it better? Baum asked. Why, yes, Mr. Baum, the bartender said. To which Baum retorted, You schmuck, then why the fuck didn't you make it that way the first time? What impression this made on the bartender is unclear, but Lois says he was invigorated by this lesson to do the best work I can. So yeah, this is, this is you know clearly uh, Joe Baum being a bit of a jerk, but also charming in his own way and inspiring people. I love all the stories about Joe Baum. He's really quite something. That's my guest, Tom Rust, and he's reading from his book, The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World, about windows on the world, the restaurant that was destroyed in the 9-11 attack. Um, I also want to give a, a sense to how um, not only was Joe Baum, this creativity, this fabulous place was happening, but all of the people that he gathered together, the talent that he gathered together to make it happen and be so fabulous. So I'm a big foodie. Um, I was dazzled by the names of the now celebrity chefs that other people will will recognize. So James Beard designed the menu. Jacques Pepin guided uh, some of the other restaurants uh, in the associated with Windows on the World. Mark Murphy was head was head of what was called Cellar in the Sky and wine aficionado and expert Kevin Zarelli, I don't know how to pronounce his last name was a the, uh, cellar master. I mean these are names these are iconic names in the food and wine world at this point. I had no idea. Where did you know all this before you started doing work on the book? Um, many of the chefs who were involved, uh, I did know, yeah. I mean, but I, I was surprised by some of them. And you, 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 you dropped a few off the, the list, in fact. Um, mm. Eberhard Mueller, uh, one, one of the great, he mm. got that uh, the first uh, four stars at Le Bernardin. Uh, Michael Amonico, who was the last executive chef of the restaurant. Um, and, um, yeah, no, I, I see, I had a sense that there was a great story here. Um, but, of course, that's what being—that's the great joy of being a journalist uh, is that you discover more. You have a hunch, and then you discover that there is really, truly, that your hunch is correct. And so it was a discovery process, which was incredible. I'd like you to read again, this time from page 100, to give people a sense of how um, beautiful it was um, and the, the attention to detail um, and putting it together for all of the people who would come and dine there. And I should say, while you go to page 100, I saved all of my little pennies. I had just started working to go there for a lunch. And it was expensive and beautiful and exciting. So this has particular meaning to me. <laughs> did, did you have the coconut shrimp? I'm just wondering. I can't remember. I'm going to have to. My, my sister and I went together, so I'll have to ask her this somewhere, in- I'm sure. This was back uh, in the day when coconut shrimp wasn't really around. You know, no one had 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 that before. Now that's kind of a you know a secondhand thing that you might have at TGI Fridays. But at the time, exactly. it was really exciting. I, and I might have because my people are uh, half of my people are from Louisiana, and shrimp mm-hmm. would be a big thing to us. So we probably would have tried it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, page one hundred. As awesome as the views might be on the right, while moving forward along this window walk to the left would be another stunning design element: the cellar in the sky the intimate 36-seat restaurant that was enclosed by glass and tall geometric wine racks filled with wine. Finally, the page would lead the guests to an area studded with two dozen large floral arrangements and gold pots at the bottom of a short set of stairs, where they would usually be greeted by the smiling, gracious maitre d', Paul Egger, or one of his proxies, who would then escort the guests to a table. The main restaurant was an L-shape constituting the northeast corner of the building, 350 seats take up a lot of space, but the area was designed by Warren Plattner to not feel as big as it was. 
he built terrace levels that rose as you walked away from the windows, as well as enclosures and banquettes to create more intimate spaces, all the while making sure each table would get some view of the city below. Even guests who might have their backs to the windows would be facing mirrors. Hidden from the guests was the fact that they had walked around the kitchen, which occupied the interior of the floor and was surrounded by what was essentially an enormous square hallway that doubled as the entrance and egress for guests as well as the waitstaff's access between the kitchen and all of the eateries. The west side of the floor was dedicated to versatile private and banquet rooms that would contract or expand with partitions that could be added or removed. The rooms were decorated with welcoming motifs such as flowers or fruit, including bold paintings and photographs of tulips, autumn crocuses, and apples that either repeated in Warholian patterns or appeared oversized, a la the Big Apple. The entire floor had an over-the-top aesthetic that seemed commensurate with the expectations and showmanship of the occasion, being on top of the world. Columns were encased in gold ceramic three-dimensional tile, rose tapestries abounded, an intricate mirror ceiling loomed over the bar, and all that glass and reflective brass contributed to a luminous quality that might not have competed with the views, but at least tried to earn its place next to them. That's my guest, Tom Roston. His latest book is The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World, The Twin Towers, Windows on the World, and The Rebirth of New York. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. Tom Roston's book is our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So we've talked about the opulence, the creativity, the political shenanigans that went on, Joe Baum um, and all of his over-the-topness and perfection, all of the, uh, the the creative other people who were associated with it. And now let's talk about um, 9-11 and, and what happened. And as a piece of that, I wonder if you would also talk about the workers there, because you spend a lot of careful attention finding out where all the workers came from. And they were literally a United Nations of people, lots of immigrants. This had great meaning to them. Talk about that, if you will. Yeah, it was it was uh, so interesting to, to meet up with so many of these people from, like you said, it was the United Nations, uh, Bangladesh and Mexico and all parts of South America, um, Africa. You know, there's it was just an incredible array of people who really, I mean, it was, it was you know, as a, as a journalist, as a writer, it was so perfect because here they were from all over the world at a restaurant called Windows on the World, where they felt like they were on top of the world. And they felt then in, 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 more, in, in a metaphorical way and in, in a literal way. And the money was good and the, the people were, were good to work with. And so many of them felt like, this is it. I've made it. I don't need, to, I don't need anything else. So, you know, the, the tragedy of 9-11 um, ripples in so many ways. Of course, it's the lives that were lost. But the livelihoods of these people, you know, more than 400 employees was, was ruined. Um, and one, one that, that, that really um, that touched me was the story of Luis Alfonso Chimbo, an, an immigrant from Ecuador, who came um, from Ecuador, who worked at Windows on the World illegally. He was, he was an undocumented worker, um, and he started as a stock boy, but he moved his way up, and he was in a management position um, within four years, and he had gone on vacation um, in the August of 2001, and his first day back was September 11th, and it's one of those awful, tragic stories where he died, 
and his wife, Anna Saria, who this, is this wonderful woman who I've gotten to know, um, had to struggle with, uh, you know, the loss of her, her great love, uh, the father of her child, her husband, um, you know, the li- her livelihood, uh, the, 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 and, and um, then she, she herself was undocumented. So then she had to struggle with getting her own green card, which she didn't get until 2016. So um, the, the tragedy of 9-11 goes in many, many, many ways. And, and I felt like this book was an opportunity to touch on the tragedy, but also to tell about the lives that happened before it and around it. So in in your book, um, Windows on the World is really a character. I mean, it, maybe it's standing in for New York City, but it's, 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 it is a character. And there have been many books about 9-11, even some about the workers at, uh, at Windows, um, and a few, of course, you know, looking back at uh, what Windows on the World was. But why did you think it was important to marry all of these stories together? What did you want to illuminate by telling the combined story? Because I, I like like you, I think, uh, and m- many people love food, and we love to go to restaurants. And um, just to be a bit of a New Yorker here, New York is super proud of its restaurants. And um, the fact that so much life happens there, uh, and it's a top-down thing, bottom-up thing, uh, from the workers in the back to the workers in the front, to the wealthy people who dine there, to the wealthy people who own the restaurants. Um, so it was it truly was, like you mentioned, it was a microcosm of the city. And then to add on to that, that we know about the tragic ending of, of the restaurant on 9-11, it, it, just as a storyteller, it, it was very interesting to me to write this story where we all know the ending. Mm. So um, toward the end of the book, you know, you talk about how others tried to think about ways of recreating that magic um, of what Windows on the World represented. But it really hasn't happened. And, you know, where the space is now, there are different buildings there. And I wonder, because you are the New York and because you know this story so intimately, is this something that could ever have happen again? Could all of those perfect storm elements come together, the, you know, kind of crazy, creative, the talent pool yet undiscovered, uh, the the immigrant workers so proud to be a part of this, the all of that. Could that all come together again and 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 make something else happen, windows on the world like? I mean, I, I would say it's never going to be quite, it's never going to be exact. It's never, there's never going to be another windows. But, you know, this is, this is the other story that I try to tell from, by, by telling the story of this book, is that life goes on. We find different things. You know, there's a great restaurateur by the name of Danny Meyer who creates these incredible restaurants. Um, there's one called Manhattan that he, he created uh, that's downtown New York that has wonderful views, and it's very exciting to be there. There's the um, uh, somewhat controversial Hudson Yards that we have in, in Manhattan, mm-hmm. <laughs> which billions of dollars have been put into. They're going to have a restaurant at the top of that on the 102nd floor um, starting in 2020, I think it is, in 2020. Um, and uh, that will be interesting. It's not going to be the same. Um, you know, people go to restaurants now uh, to take selfies and to put it on the gram. So <laughs> it, it's a different world. So, uh, yeah. you know, it, it won't be the same, but um, we're still going to go to restaurants and New York is, is still going to be New York. So um, y- there's much to celebrate, but it'll be different. 
So finally, what do you think was the most fascinating thing you learned while writing this book? I think the most fascinating thing, uh, it, 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 I, I mean, I would say the most fun I had was going to a Chinese restaurant with about 20 of the waiters who still hang out together. And just to mm. be with those guys and just to feel the comrade camaraderie between them. Um, and like you said, you know, from every country, it was like crazy. Like you go around, like Egypt and Bangladesh and China and, you know, um, Poland. It's just like all these guys are just from all over the place. And, um, I, you know, again, as a writer, you know, you try to imagine something metaphorical. But the the literal, these literal actual lives of these people is so poetic. Um, and yet there are just these real people, these real um, um, amazing people who survived and went through this awful experience, but who continue to eat, you know, black bean shrimp and drink wine and have a great time. And, and you know, the, the spirit of the restaurant continues, I think, through people like that. Well, you've told quite the story. Um, I read everything, but I love a nonfiction book, which reads like a novel and offers all the emotional journey a, a novel can. You know, the big ups and the big downs, the huge uh, life-changing events, the big personalities, the characters you care about, the small moments that make you cry. And I did tear up more than a few times, I have to say. It was very emotional. Extremely well done, Tom. Um, way at the back uh, in your acknowledgments, you mentioned someone who said to you, no one cares to know about mm -hmm. Joe Baum, who, who mm -hmm. was the, the mastermind behind all of this. And you said you hoped that wasn't true. Well, it's not true. I was very interested. So, Thank you so much. <laughs> Good luck to you. And um, uh, I loved it. And um, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Tom Rustin is the author of The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World, The Twin Towers, Windows on the World, and The Rebirth of New York. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, and it is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our engineer is Dave Goodman. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.